Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. If you will open that with your cursor, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, one of the most recent articles was my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the Scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice after all, that has all been a misunderstanding. Well, there will be others, but I mentioned those three. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. Now, back to our current study. We continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. We are currently in Hebrews chapter 3. We were last looking at verse 15. So again, the writer recalls the words of Psalm 95. In doing so, he's refreshing his reader's consciousness of the exact analogy of their situation with those to whom the words of Psalm 95 were originally addressed. He's underscoring the urgency of their getting a grip on their faith, which right now is a little loosey-goosey. Right now, while God's gracious voice may still be heard, while the window of opportunity to enter into the riches of God's grace is still open, right now, while it is still today on God's clock, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoke me. Words from Psalm 95 being applied to these contemporary Hebrew Christians who were showing signs of retreat from their original faith. He appeals to them and he says, Look, while it is still today on God's clock and not yesterday, meaning a time, an opportunity past and never to return, listen to the voice of God that has come to you in his Son and through his apostles. Don't blow this opportunity, he says in effect. Time and again in the course of my own Christian life, 
I've seen scenarios similar to this played out in contemporary Christianity. It takes different shapes, but perhaps the closest analogy to this are those tragic stories of people who make a profession of faith in Christ like these Hebrew Christians did. They appear for a time to be flourishing, to be genuinely converted. They talk the talk. They, for a time, give outward evidence of walking the walk, much as the nation Israel did when they were coming out of Egypt, where it is actually said in Exodus 14.31, they feared the Lord, that is, they worshipped the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But, and here's a big but, as they were tested along the way in their wilderness wanderings, those people reverted to form. It didn't take any time for them to fall back in their same old ruts of the flesh and unbelief. And so we still see that in every generation. We see those folk who give an indication of coming to Christ, of coming to faith in Him, but when push comes to shove, they just cannot bring themselves to trust God, to trust His goodness, His power, His wisdom, to trust His will and His ways. Just like the ancient Israelites, their attachment to their own desires, to their own wisdom, is greater than any confidence they have in God, despite their initial confession of faith. So they dally with sin, it deceives them. They ignore the warnings of their conscience, just like the Israelites did. They grow harder and harder, and before long, we notice they're just a shell of their former enthusiastic selves. The light has gone from their faces, the old joy is no longer in evidence. There's no steam anymore, no spiritual steam anymore. And at last, they are just impervious to the voice of God. We all remember when once they were seemingly sensitive to God's voice, when initially they seemed so ready to do His will, but hey, now they're adrift and they're spiritually callous. Sometimes these kind of folk that we all see, they will continue to ride it out in the church, kind of like dead marine life on the surf of the ocean when there's a red tide. Their shell remains in the marine environment, but their life is long gone. There are lots of folk in our churches like that. They're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, just like the ancient Israelites. They cannot be reached any more than the Exodus generation could be reached by the voice of God. They wouldn't obey. They wouldn't obey God because at bottom they didn't believe or trust God. That's what this passage is telling us. They didn't believe his character. They didn't trust his ways. And there comes a point where then they can't. By the way, that connection between belief and disobedience is axiomatic. Unbelief is sin, and sin, whatever form it takes, always projects, to some degree, unbelief. Israel's chronic disobedience in first this situation and then in that went back to the same old root. They just couldn't find it in their hearts to trust the goodness, the power, the wisdom of God on a sustained basis. A contemporary variation of this mode are those folk who just drift out and away from their local churches altogether. One sees them in the store or in the streets or at work. They're just dead men walking or dead women walking. You can feel it and they look it. And you just say to yourself, oh, if they would just have continued to trustingly hear God's voice as long as it was today. But somewhere the allurements of sin, this is unbelief working, Deceive them. The way of sin seem more life-sustaining to them than the ways of God. That spells unbelief. 
Sin just told them about the high, about its pleasures. Sin never told them about its hangover, about its bitter price. And by the time their love of sin got finished with them, their mugged consciences could no longer awaken them. Today receded into yesterday, a window of grace closed forever. So here in verse 15, pulling a citation out of Psalm 95 from which he had earlier quoted in verses 7 through 11, I'll start reading in verse 14, For we become partakers of Christ if, 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 we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. It is a dangerous thing, my friends, to hear the voice of God and ignore it. It's a dangerous thing to hear the siren call of sin and heed it. While you can hear the voice of God, my appeal to you is to listen. Listen while it is still today, while the grace of God is still there and working in your heart. The day the Word of God no longer moves you, no longer compels you, no longer stirs you, no longer lifts you, no longer puts the fear or reverence of God in you, I tell you, you're in a great danger of the sun going down on what the author of Psalm 95 calls today. Today is that indeterminate and temporary window of the grace our sovereign God opens. In verse 16, he continues, chapter 3 of Hebrews, he asks a question, a sobering question, one that these Hebrew Christians need to apply to themselves. He mentioned in verse 15, Do not harden your hearts as when they, the Exodus generation, provoked me. He asked, Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt provoke God, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry? Because Psalm 95 had referred to that. With whom was God angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? I ask you, to whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest? We'll get to that, but it means salvation rest. But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter in because, he doesn't say now disobedience, he says unbelief. Because those two things go together. Where there is this consistent streak of disobedience, there is unbelief. Where there is unbelief, there will always be disobedience. Now, the citation from Psalm 95, which we found in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, and a piece of it cited again in verse 15. The citation from Psalm 95, which reflects specifically on the defining actions of Israel, described way back in Numbers 13 and 14, when their forefathers refused to trust God and push on into the promised land from Kadesh Barnea, it was this sin that provoked God. Now the author carefully draws their attention to precisely, I want you to understand, he says to these Hebrew Christians, who was it that earned the everlasting opprobrium of God? Who provoked him when they heard and did not trust his promises as the idea? Indeed, was it not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Did not that whole crowd participate in that fatal provocation? Now, what's the author getting at, the author of Hebrews? He will not allow any room for spiritual presumption on the part of these Hebrew Christians. So he's drawing an analogy between the behavior, the actions, the spiritual status of that generation that came out of Egypt, spoken of in Psalm 95, and some signs, some disturbing signs he sees among these Hebrew Christians and disturbing signs that we continue to see throughout the generations. He does not want any Hebrew Christians to imagine 
any kind of impunity for unbelief or any kind of immunity. He does not want them to think that just because they are bona fide Israelites, that there's any shelter in their pedigree. If they, duplicating their fathers who turned away from the promised land of heaven, to which Jesus Christ shows the way, don't think, if we neglect so great a salvation, that just because you're a child of Abraham, somehow you're going to be protected. The precedent is quite clear, let them be warned. There is never, ever, for anyone, anywhere, any exception to God's command to trust in him. And in this particular case, his voice has called them to hear and to follow his son, Jesus Christ. Now, should they turn back from God's voice in his son, he's saying, you will provoke the displeasure and the judgment of God just as surely as your forefathers did way back there in Kadesh Barnea, where they balked at entering the promised land because they were fearful of the giants in the land and because Egypt started looking good to them in retrospect. You do not want to go there. Our writer is telling these Hebrew Christians who are getting a little loose at the screws in their faith in Christ and thinking about turning back not from Kadesh Barnea, but turning back from Christ and the promise of an eternal promised land. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a very good commentary on this ancient tragedy referred to in this text. There, the Apostle Paul makes the point that even though all Israel shared in the physical deliverance from Egypt, they were all, in effect, baptized in identification with Moses, just as we Christians are baptized into Christ. And all that generation shared in the supernatural benefits that graced those who were delivered from Egypt. You know what? In the final analysis, those people demonstrated in their repeated acts of disobedience and rebellion, they demonstrated incorrigible unbelief. And they knew this, certainly we ought to know this, that God took them out. He did so by various acts of judgment. And none of those adults actually entered the promised land. In the final analysis, the point is, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and here in Hebrews, and let's all listen up. There are no spiritual credentials. There is no spiritual pedigree. And there are no close encounters with the power and the presence of God that will compensate for this essential condition of spiritual reality. What is that? Trusting in God, trusting in His promises, obeying His voice, heeding His Son. Fail there, and all is lost. That is always the case, and it ever shall be. Just like the ancient Israelites, who got all hung up on their relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their ritual forms of worship, and that was their security blanket, so to speak. There are people today who look at their long membership in a church, and their parents were professing Christians, and their grandfather, and nine of them were preachers, and six of them were missionaries, you know, things like that. And they remember being around and being part of certain, they claim, possibly so, supernatural kinds of experiences. All of that says to them, hey, I'm good. My friend, I don't care what it is. You're not good with God, 
unless you trust in his Son. And trust in his Son is manifested in obedience. When we are judged at the end times, the scriptures tell us, hear me well here, don't mishear me. The scriptures tell us we will be judged by our works. Romans chapter 2. Now hold it just a minute. Don't misunderstand. By that statement, we will be judged by our works, is meant those works that show or manifest faith. We are saved by grace through faith and faith alone. But here's the deal. The reality of faith is judged by obedience to the voice of God. That's what this writer is trying to get across to these Hebrew Christians. You can go to church until the cows come home. You can read your Bible daily. You can take Bible courses. You can attend prayer meetings. You can serve on committees, sing in choirs, and take meals to the homeless and whatever. All that is well and good. But none of those things or all together is any substitute for just believing God, for taking God at his word. That is what God wants to know. Do we listen to his voice? That's what Israel did not do. And that's what these Hebrew Christians, some of them at least, are on the verge of not doing, not obeying the voice of the Son of God and turning back to Judaism. I say that because I see folk who are very churchy. They do all those things that I just delineated. But when things don't go their way, or somebody offends them, or life gets ugly with them, all of a sudden, the voice of God means zero. The Lord confronts them with some testing moment, and they blow a gasket. They break out into a stream of ungodliness that can only reflect an evil, unbelieving heart underneath that pious exterior that fooled so many for so long. Folks, this is serious business. We need to listen, and we need to see ourselves in the mirror here. So in verses 17 and 18, the writer accentuates his point when he asks, With whom was he angry for forty years? Note that his indignation didn't come all of a sudden. The Lord knew the unbelieving heart of this generation, this nation from the get-go. The writer says, I ask you, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It wasn't just that they sinned. We all sinned. But it wasn't just that they sinned on an occasion. They just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly disobeyed God. From whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest? Meaning into his salvation. We'll get to that in the next chapter. He meant those who were disobedient. You will notice, listeners, throughout this passage, how unbelief and disobedience and send are virtually interchangeable concepts because each term is just the flip side of the other. So what's the bottom line? Well, he comes to verse 19, and he says, So we see, I want you to see, Hebrew Christians, that that generation of Israelites was not able to enter God's rest. Because of what? Now he uses the term unbelief. He's been talking about disobedience. He's been talking about their sinning. Now he says unbelief. That's what I mean. Notice how these terms, they're interchangeable. Their root problem was a heart of unbelief. The writer is saying, if you blow it at this point, there's no more remedy for you, Hebrew Christians, than there was for them. You could be Abraham, Moses, David, all rolled into one. But if you don't exhibit, demonstrate, trust in the Word of God, with God you won't pass muster. And what is that gracious time 
today will for you turn out to be yesterday. You may be physical Israel, you may own a great heritage, but all that is as worthless as a plug nickel. If a man or woman doesn't listen to God, listen to God in faith, that is. If one listens to God in faith is the idea, well, here's the deal. One will obey God. And if one will obey God, one will trust in the word of God whom he sent. Now, there's nothing changed about that, and we must understand that. So, in chapter 4, our author will sharpen his conclusion. He will sharpen it so that there's no evading the point that God rejected a whole generation of their forefathers. He did so because of unbelief, and that unbelief was projected in their rebelliousness, in their consistent disobedience. And he's saying, I'm warning you, that same judgment will be repeated in your case if you follow suit. And I say the same in our generation. There is so much of this thought around the churches today that just because at some point we uttered the magic words, okay, I believe in Jesus, I accept him as my Savior, then we were duly baptized and we became a member of a church and started participating in all the activities, but every time there comes a rub, every time there comes a testing, every testing becomes a temptation. The flesh makes it one, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Well, we do what we want and not what God wants. And you know why we do that? We do that because we do not trust the goodness of God. We do not trust his precepts. We do not trust his goodness. We do not trust his principles. We get into a marriage situation. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what we promised. We say, oh, I'm unhappy to hell with that. And that's exactly what people say. That's exactly what they say. If they don't say it orally, that's what they mean. So, I'm going to do what I want, and I know, God, you want me to be happy. My friends, God wants you to do what you promised to do. Do you understand? We get in a job situation, and we get sidewise, and we live and work and act in such a way that is not Christian, because we don't believe God. We don't trust God. I had a businessman say to me one time when he was acting very corruptly, and I confronted him. He said, Jim, you've never been in business. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying, look, I don't believe God. I don't think those things work in the real world. So i got to do what i got to do. Well, it's very likely. I don't know. God sees the heart. I can't take measure of those things. But we can do a little fruit inspecting, and by their fruits you shall know them, not only false prophets but false people. It's always been the same thing. If we walk in rebellion, we walk in disobedience, we spend our lives making decisions that are on our own terms rather than God's terms, we can talk about faith till the cows come home, but there is no faith there. Our disobedience reflects unbelief, and we've got to come to terms with that. Now, none of us walk in a perfect faith, and therefore none of us walk in perfect obedience. But there's the big picture. There's integrity in men and women who believe God. Once in a while, they fall off the center line. We know that. But men and women who believe God have a habit of trying earnestly to walk in the ways of the Lord. They try to walk in an ethical way. They try to walk in a moral way. They try to walk by the grace of God in love and not in hate. They try to be forgiving and not all seized up in bitterness and anger by the grace of God. They earnestly and honestly try. But those who are at bottom unbelievers, no. But they go on going to church and claiming to be believers. When the Lord judges by our works, 
at the end, he will be judging to test the validity of our faith. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach.